0: So today, um, we are actually in our second installment of a sermon series that we just started last week. And I don't know if it's a a combination of a lot of different things that have been happening uh, in the lives of people within this community, but it feels all the more weighty. Like what we are preaching and what we believe in, it's more than just ideas. It's more than just principles. It's truth. It's a person, and it has everything to do with how we live out our lives. And so there's many different prayer topics that, you know, we haven't been able to share from this platform because they were shared in confidence. But suffice it to say that this is a season where all these things, the reality of eternity, the reality of the gospel, the reality of the person of Jesus is becoming more and more tangible as different things in our midst shake. And so last week I actually preached a message titled Intro to End Times The Glory of Jesus and the Church Revealed. And my only point in this message it was there is no place in scripture where we see the beauty the sufficiency the glory of Christ more than when we look at the end times. That's where we Although we already know he is an all-sufficient savior, we already know that he's a king of kings and lord of lords, that he's a merciful shepherd. We know all these things, but when we fix our eyes on this moment in time that the Bible calls the end times, we see clearer than ever before that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship. That he is indeed the king of kings and Lord of lords. It's as if the veil was torn from off our eyes and we saw Jesus Christ in the fullness of his glory, defeating Satan in the fullness of his wrath. And there is no place in scripture that makes it as clear as like Technicolor HD clear than when we look at the end times. And I shared a little bit about my own personal journey when it came to the end times. This is not a topic, if I'm very honest, this is not a topic that I chose to study. It almost came by accident. I shared last week that I had no intention of studying the end times, uh, studying all these things that I thought are kind of spooky and creepy and kind of like weird Christians out there are the only ones who really care about these things. So I was obviously very judgmental, uh, but in my mind, there's like the mainstream, clean, respectable Christians on this side, and they care about the gospel, they care about the word. And then there's kind of like this offshoot, right? Kind of like a little bit weird Christians, and they have this fixation on the end times. And in my mind, nobody had taught me this. But in my mind, I classified Christians into these two different camps. There's like the respectable, dignified, you know, Christians. And then there's kind of like this offshoot, this weird group of Christians. I'm not really crazy about them. I don't know if I want to go there. I don't want to, I don't want to be seen even as that. And this is obviously my very religious, very judgmental side coming up, right? But the more and more I pursue Jesus Christ. And the more and more I read this word in its fullness, not just the parts that made me feel comfortable, but especially the parts that I would normally skip over, the books that I would normally skip over for years and years, even when I was a professing Christian, the more I looked at the Bible, the more I saw that this topic of end times is actually inevitable. It's unavoidable. You cannot listen to Jesus preach for more than a couple of chapters before the topic of end times comes up. You cannot read through any of the Old Testament prophets without the topic of end times coming up. You can't read even through the Psalms. You know, you can read a couple of chapters maybe, but then all of a sudden the topic of end times would come up. And more and more, I realized that this topic is fully embedded in the whole scripture. It's not just one book here, which I thought was, you know, the book of Revelation. I can know all the books and this one, eh, I don't really need to know. It's kind of optional and an elective of sorts. It's like you can be a, uh, you can minor in this, but you don't you need don't to major in this kind of feeling. Um, I realized more and more that no, it's not just in the book of Revelation. It's actually everywhere in scripture. And if you were to tear out every page that has anything to do with end times, you'd end up with no Bible like maybe a couple pages here and there, and that's it. You'd end up with no Bible. And that's because it's all over scripture and God cares about it. It's not because of anything else. It's not about being a certain kind of Christian or preaching a certain kind of message. This is the word of God. And that part cannot be avoided. So for many years, I was actually a little bit embarrassed to talk about end times so when people would ask me, okay, so what is it that you believe in? What is the gospel that, you know, you, you, you preach on, or you talk about, you know, I would be super confident when it came. Okay. You are a sinner and Jesus Christ in his mercy. He had to come down and die your death on a cross so that you would be redeemed. And because he died and because he rose again, now you, in God's eyes, you are now a son of God. You are blameless and spotless. And the Record that Jesus had, now you have. The record that you had, the sinner that cannot be saved on their own power, Jesus took that upon a cross. And I was super confident when it came to that. And then I would kind of mumble something along the lines of, like, oh yeah, and he's kind of coming back someday, you know? yeah, there's like a few things here and there and it's not for sure. And so I would find myself like really confidently talking about, you know, this is the gospel message. But then when it came to the second coming, when it came to our resurrection of, the bo- of our bodies, when it came to eternity, I would kind of just like leave that unsaid. I didn't feel like it needed to be part of the main gospel message. But this is something that I have repeated over and over and over again. And that is that the good news of the gospel without the return of Christ is no good news at all. The good news of the gospel gospel means good news, right? The good news of the gospel without the return of Christ. So everything up until his his first coming, everything up until his ascension, the good news of the gospel without the coming, the second coming of Jesus Christ is no good news at all. I'm not saying that what I perceive to be the gospel message is wrong. All I mean to say is that it is incomplete. I'm not saying that Jesus coming down, dying for you on the cross, you know, dying your death, being raised back to life and then ascending into heaven I'm not saying that is not the gospel. I'm saying that it's the incomplete gospel. That's only talking about the first half. It's like if you watched Lord of the Rings and only watched the first part, you know, and you just stopped it at that. You're like, well, it's kind of up in suspense. We don't know what's going to happen. Good luck, you know, and you never resolve the actual story. When we talk about the gospel, we have to talk from the very beginning all the way to the very end. And over the years, as as I've been meditating on what exactly is the gospel, I realized more and more that the definition that Jesus gives, the definition that the prophets give, the definition that the apostles give is far more comprehensive than I had previously thought. And so I realized that I needed to redefine what the gospel meant to me. That made me very uncomfortable because if there was one thing that I was very clear on and very sure about is what is the gospel? If I were to ask every single person here in this room, so what is the gospel message? And there's 40 of you here. I'd have 40 different answers to that. There's different parts that we emphasize. There's different parts that we kind of gloss over, certain parts that we leave out altogether. And so we need to have a full understanding, not of what so-and-so says about the gospel, not about what this preacher or this even theologian thinks about. The gospel is. What does God think about the gospel? What does the Word say about the gospel? And so today's message is actually titled "The Intro Into End Times," and it is, oi well, not that. Um, it is the glory of the gospel revealed. Last week we talked about what is uh, the end times. It reveals the full glory of Jesus and the full glory of the church. And today we're going to talk about how the end times reveals the glory of the gospel message. This is one of uh, this is some of the reasons why we actually never talk about the end times. Number one, it is not attainable. So why try like it's kind of like shrouded in mystery and we're never really fully going to know this thing. And so it's always going to be speculative and we'll just never know for sure. So why even try life is full of uncertainty already. Why talk about this mysterious thing? And so in us, we build this like uh, justification that oh, it's futile to actually talk about that. Nobody really knows anyway. And so why even study it? But that's not the way that Jesus talks about it. That's not the way that the Bible talks about it. And so we are actually not justified in this approach. Second, it is not practical to my everyday life. It's one of the things that we relegate to this abstract realm. Like, this is how to live a godly life. And then somewhere out here is this abstract idea of what's going to happen in the future and the things that Jesus warned us about. And so we kind of, like, say, this is the practical, concrete things about the faith. And this end times thing is somewhere out there. You know, not part of, you know, the practical things that have an everyday application in my life. And that, again, is not how the Bible approaches it. The Bible approaches it like... Like Jesus is there saying, let me give you the most practical thing in your life so that you can live out in godliness with uh, alertness in your heart, preparedness for the times. And then he begins to talk about the end times. It's as if Jesus thought the most practical thing that I could equip the body of Christ with is this idea of end times. Like we're going somewhere, something is at stake and you need to be prepared for something let me give you this um this uh illustration and i got permission from this you guys know our sister luna right our sister luna recently gave birth it's like this cu- the cutest little you know massive rolls his name is zion and he's like a mini dad like a mini homo minus the facial hair and if anybody here knows luna you guys know how she is right she's very like oh it'll be okay You know, her whole pregnancy, all nine months, she was like, I think it'll be okay. I think, yeah, I think I'm ready. I don't want to stress about too much. Um, But then when you hear the after story, right? Like how she gave birth, how difficult it was, how painful it was. In her mind, it was like, I hate every person who told me I would be okay. I hate every person told me. Yeah, you'll be fine. Oh, you're healthy. Oh, you're young. You're physically active. You'll be fine. She was like, I hate every person who said that. How could you do that to me? You did me no favors because I got to the birthing room completely unprepared mentally, spiritually, physically. I wasn't ready for that. And so obviously she didn't, maybe she didn't say hate the word, but like, you know, she was like, I wish they hadn't said that to me, right? Because it was so difficult. She needed to know concretely. You know, she didn't need her feelings to be spared because it would be something that's difficult to hear. She, it would have served her well to actually know the nitty-gritty, to know what to expect, what are the worst-case scenarios, yes, how to prepare for this mentally, emotionally, physically. And so she said that I was so unprepared for how difficult my delivery was going to be. And so in the same way, when we, well by the way, she's okay. And the baby's great. He's very healthy. I think whatever grace wasn't there for the birthing is there in the raising the baby. And so they're doing great. But when it comes to the end times and the church, we often approach it that way as well. Even as a preacher, I'm like, why should I preach on that? You know, like uh, we don't really need to get uncomfortable. There's enough stuff for us to, you know, talk about, preach on, apply and live out as a community. Why do we even need to talk about end times? And so in my mind, I'm doing y'all a favor by avoiding a subject that is very uncomfortable. But in the same way that Luna got to the birthing room completely unprepared and it kind of blindsided her in the same way it will be for the church. If I as a preacher, if we as a body don't talk about the end times, it's going to be comfortable for now until the shakings come. Until even the Bible calls it birthing pains, right? Until the birth pains come. And that's when we realize that we as a body of Christ Are not equipped to deal with the shakings that are surely to come. And so I cannot do that out of love for the church. We need to talk about the end times. I'm not doing anybody any favors by not preaching about it. Number one, because it is a part of the gospel. But number two, also because it will leave us so ill prepared for what is up ahead that when that moment comes, if you've never heard anybody teaching on it, preaching on it, exhorting you on it, then you will feel just like Luna felt. I had all these pastors and mentors and disciples in my life. Nobody ever brought this up. Nobody told me that sufferings are part of the Christian walk. I don't know what to do with suffering. I don't know what to do with illness. I don't know what to do when my family shakes or my job is at stake. I don't know what to do when these massive global shakings are happening. I have no grid for it. Why? Because I've never heard of this being talked about. And so for the church, for the body of Christ to be fully prepared, Jesus and his kindness... Jesus and his mercy didn't spare us from those teachings and we shouldn't either. And so why do we stay away from the study of end times? Number one, it's not attainable. So why try, you know, it's not practical to everyday life. We have enough things to think about. So this theoretical thing, we don't really need to talk about. And there's also this embedded idea in our minds that it is not central to the gospel. Like I said at the very beginning, we feel like the gospel message is here. This is somewhere out there in the periphery. Like we, we kind of need to know about it, but we don't really need to know about it. Jesus made this very central. Whenever he talked about the gospel, it wasn't just about his first coming. He was always talking about his second coming. Every prophet, every writer, every apostle always talks about the second coming of Christ. So today we'll delve into this third objection Studying the end times a bit more deeply. And um, last time, uh, last week, I talked about how the end times, it showcases the pinnacle of the glory of King Jesus, the conquering king. The bridegroom, the merciful savior, and also showcases the glory of the church. It's no longer just a scrawny bunch of timid, like fair weather, like I don't want to offend anybody, bunch of disciples. They become a mighty, defiant, passionate church that is able to withstand the greatest pressures that they had ever faced. And they're able to come out victorious. So this week's message, again, is the end times and the glory of the gospel revealed. We think too lowly and too narrowly about the gospel. We think about it too modestly. But it is far more glorious than we understand. And when we look at the end times, that's when we see it even more Clearly. So we're gonna go into a kind of intense passage today. Is that okay with you guys? We're gonna go into a kind of intense passage. Yes. So when we talk about end times and we think about what did Jesus preach about this, we have to go to Matthew towards the end, right? We're gonna go into Matthew 24. Again, it's a kind of intense passage. All throughout the year, we've been talking about the sermon, uh, uh, the sermon on the Mount, right? The Mount of Beatitudes. We're talking about Jesus, gathering crowds and saying, Blessed are the poor and spared, for theirs is the kingdom of God. All of these things. This is a different kind of mount. This is not the beginning of his ministry. This is towards the end of his ministry. It's not the Mount of Beatitudes. This is the Mount of Olives. This is when death is at his doorstep. When betrayal is at his doorstep, when he knows that when he's crucified, his disciples are going to disperse. He knows that all things, all these things are right, you know, on the brink of happening. And Jesus feels like it's very important to talk about the end times. If I were Jesus, I would have talked about something else. You know, I would have talked about a lot more practical stuff. Like, okay, when I'm gone, this is what you need to do. This is how to go about things. And there's going to be one dude who's going to betray me and you're going to have to replace him. And so the best way to, you know, that's how I would have used that precious moment. And yet Jesus seemed to think differently. He talked about his second coming as if that's going to be the most important thing. He's going to leave with them before he goes to the cross. So Matthew 24, we're going to be reading from verse three all the way to verse 14 and you can follow along, you know, in your Bible or you can follow along on the screen. And it reads as he sat on the Mount of olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? If anybody, if we were in their shoes, I would have asked the same thing. Like, okay, you talked about all these creepy things that are going to happen. Like, so, uh, should we expect it like next week, like next month? Like, so can you give us a little more detail? You can't just tease us like that. You can't just give us a trailer. We kind of need to know it's kind of important. And so Jesus answered them in a very interesting way. He said, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name. Seeing, saying I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. It's like he's already seeing, like, you know, 20 years in advance, you know, thousands of years in advance. He already knows this. And he's saying, see that no one uh, leads you astray. And then he says, see that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then, as if that wasn't enough, wait, there's more. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So there's bad news and there's worse news, right? And then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So, this is really, really bad news. He's saying, hey, the world is going to be shaking. Even the things that you think are sure, like within the church, even that is going to be in chaos. And just when you begin to think, okay, maybe at least I'll still, you know, still be firm in my faith, He says, no, the love of many will actually grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. Thank goodness for the next verse, right? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end. It's like bad news, bad news, worse news. But there's going to be a people who are going to endure. After all that, after the shakings in the world, the shakings within the church, the shakings within your heart, there's still going to be a people that against all odds will endure to the end. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony, not just a written word, lived out experience word to all nations. And then the end will come. This verse in and of itself should give us so much hope. This verse in and of itself should also challenge our understanding of what is this gospel that he's talking about? Isn't it kind of irrelevant if we think that the, the gospel is simply what Jesus has you know, done 2,000 years ago. This has nothing to do with this falling away, with the shaking. This is like way in the future. Jesus seems to have the impression that the gospel includes a second coming. Jesus, ha- Jesus has the impression that the first coming is only a precursor, a guarantee of the second coming to come. So his. Understanding of the fullness, the extent, the culmination of the gospel is much wider and greater than we understand. Jesus himself is describing the gospel, the kingdom, in a very different light. And so we need to redefine the gospel. Our very narrow understanding of what the gospel is is insufficient, it's not enough. To get us all the way to the end, to endure to the end, to go through the shakings, to go through the shakings within the church, to go through the shakings outside the church and even within your own heart. The gospel. Of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed a gospel that has withstood the test of time, the test of shakings, the test even of many hearts growing cold. This gospel will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony lived out, tried and true, a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when we talk about the gospel, there's three different ways in which I want us to redefine what the gospel means. First thing is the gospel is about redeeming the broken, redeeming the broken. When I think about the way that I myself would have explained the gospel, it had less to do with redemption and it had more to do with escape. Like this life is too hard. This human mortal frame is too weak. I need an out. Like, I need to get out of here. And so the gospel is like my ticket into escape. Like, I just get to leave all of this behind. But it's so, it's such, uh, like, the perfection of God's wisdom is that he doesn't just take what is broken, scrap it. He takes what is broken and chooses to make it new. He chooses to take that which is damaged beyond repair and make it new. He chooses to take the worst of sinners, the sinner of sinners, and make them a holy nation. Have you ever read through the Bible and God really exasperated at Israel? Like if you guys have read any of the books in the Old Testament, you're like, oh my gosh. Israel, could you like, keep it together, like hold it together for at least, you know, more than what a chapter or two, but we see in the narrative of scripture over and over and over again, that Israel falls at every turn. Just when they turn back around and turn back to the Lord, then you just look over to the next column and They've fallen again. They've begun to worship idols all over again. Now, here's the thing. We can look at the scripture and be like, gosh, Israel, can you just get it together? But the story of Israel is the story of mankind. We have all failed. We have all turned back to the Lord. And then only a few columns later, turn back to our idols. We have all tried to save ourselves, tried to remain faithful to God. And we have failed over and over and over again, so the gospel message is not that God will save Israel when she proves herself when she finally get, gives her like gets her life in order it 's God taking the broken the dead, and making it new it 's like in ezekiel thirty seven when 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 the the prophet sees a valley full of dry bones, the prophet prophesize over it. And we see bodies rising up from these dead bones. So what was dead is now resurrected. And that's not enough. That's not enough. Then God asked the prophet breathe life into it. It's more than just a people. These are people that are going to be an army, a nation we're looking not just at, at, at God taking what is broken, scrapping it. He's not just taking this and, okay, let's bring it back to status quo. God is taking what is broken and tainted and compromised. He makes it new and he makes it into a nation and an army and a force to be reckoned with. The, the gospel message is not just about let's avoid hell. Let's avoid punishment. It's so much more glorious than that. Yes, you do get to sidestep those things. Yes, when you call upon Jesus, your destiny is sealed in a very different direction. Yes, but it's not just a matter of accepting Christ and hoping you make it to the end of your life without renouncing him. You know, I hope I don't fall into really bad sin. I hope I just, you know, I don't avoid these really, really bad things. And maybe I'll, I'll kind of squeak in at the finish line. Jesus says the gospel is much more glorious than that you are not just going to be turned from a sinner to a saint, but you are also going to be a force to be reckoned with. You're going to be a holy people, a holy nation, a priesthood for the glory of God. And that is the fullness, the extent of the gospel. It's not just about escape. It's about redemption, taking what is broken and making it new. Taking what is evil and defeating it forever, taking what is damaged beyond repair and making something new, taking ashes and giving beauty, taking death and giving life, dry bones, making an army, taking the sinful and making it holy, taking the adulterous nations and making them a covenant people. That is the gospel. It doesn't end with you accepting Jesus into your heart and trying to live a life that is okay and decent for the next 30 years until you see him face to face. It's much greater, much better than that. It's about a God that purchased you so that you would spend eternity with him. Let me give you just this picture, right? Imagine I showed up to church in full american football gear like from top top of my head to the bottom of my feet like helmet shoulder pads cleats maybe not spandex nobody wants that um but you know fully geared you would look at me and you'd be like i wonder what she thinks is in store for the sunday right like she must be anticipating and preparing for what she thinks the sunday is going to be about It means that she's expecting to get hit. She's going to be expecting to be bumped around. She's expecting that it's going to take a lot of energy and intentionality. But if I show up like in shorts and like flip flops, you're like, oh, she expects today to be pretty laid back. Like she's not foreseeing anybody tackling her in the middle of the aisle, right? Otherwise, she'd be wearing a full gear. But in the same way, when we see Ephesians 6 talking about the full armor of God, we don't see a church and we don't see a people that are dressed in shorts and flip-flops, right? We see a church that is fully decked out. Helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of of what? No, yes, no, yes. Truth. Yes. (laughs) Truth. Feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel shield of faith, the word, the sword of of the spirit, which is a word fully decked out. It means that the church that God has died for and God has redeemed is not a church that is going to have a flip flops and shorts kind of Sunday. It's a church that's going to have to be ready for attacks. A church that is going to have to be on guard, alert, ready for what's up ahead. That's the kind of church that God has designed. Second is that the gospel is about victory through tribulation. It's not victory without tribulation. It's about victory through tribulation. Oftentimes, especially modern day Christianity, we're very shy to talk about suffering. We're like, hey, hey, let's not think about that. Like life is going to be good. And, you know, it's, it's only going to be roses and rainbows and unicorns. And I don't know what else it's only going to be. That's let's not, let's not talk about, you know, suffering. Let's not talk about, you know, the harder things of life, but the Bible is actually not shy about talking about suffering in this lifetime. The Christian walk is never framed as sidestepping trials and tribulations. It's framed as making it through trials, through tribulations, So last year, I'm going to tell this story kind of correlated to um, the story that I shared last week. Last year, I was a part of this pastor's meeting, and we kind of meet pretty regularly. And within that group, there's, like, very well-learned, you know, very accredited, very experienced and seasoned pastors. And usually among them, there's going to be one person that shares, and it's kind of a devotional time for a lot of pastors. But last year, I went to this one meeting where our speaker was very unique. It was actually this very small, very petite, very frail-looking, about, like, a woman, like, in her 70s. And she looked like she couldn't hurt a fly. Like like if you would breathe next to her, she'd kind of topple over. Like like very like you know like oh that's nice. And so we sat down and we're like we're ready to hear what she was going to say. It turns out that she was actually a North Korean. She was a North Korean, escaped out of North Korea, came to South Korea, accepted Jesus, became like a a, a born again believer, and she was in the process of getting equipped. And trained to go back into North Korea as a missionary, this seventy year old woman I was like, "What have I done with my life? Am I even saved? <laughs> like am I you know this this frail looking old woman you know and, and it 's like God chose to take what looks so weak from the outside and make it into something so glorious, so defiant, so powerful and here 's the crazy thing, right. Um, so she wasn't just, you know, somebody who was training to go into North Korea, uh, North Korea missions, just choosing to do that. But two things that she shared with the pastors, when the pastors, you know, were asking her, Hey, can you end your time of sharing and your experiences just by sharing a couple of prayer topics with us? And we'll pray for you in our minds. We're like, she's obviously going to ask, you know, for, you know, persecutions to end in North Korea who wouldn't want that. Right. Like, obviously, that's going to be one of her prayer topics. And instead, this is what she shared. She said, it's such a miracle that God would save a sinner like me and that he would take somebody as uneducated, unworthy, like people would just like overlook me wherever I go, inexperienced, untraveled, and that God would use me to bring the gospel back to my homeland. Pray that I remain faithful. She didn't say, pray that I don't get to suffer. She didn't say, pray that, you know, I I don't get captured by authorities. She didn't say any of that. She said, pray that I would remain faithful. I am very aware of the reality in North Korea. I'm very aware of what's happening down in the ground. But what I want more than, you know, an end to the pain, what I want more than that is that I would remain faithful. I have a call on my life. God has equipped me with his Holy Spirit, and I just want to be faithful to what God has called me to do. That was one of her prayer topics. And the second one, it was, pray that Christians in North Korea, they would not give up. And she was saying, do you know that there's revival happening in concentration camps? Like where people worship God with everything that they have. And it's not just that they say they're laying down their lives, but they're actually laying down their lives day in and day out. And they are turning to Christ. They are believing in this Jesus, that people will be willing to be tortured for that. And even when guards would see these crazy Christians willing to go through torture, willing to go through imprisonment, even for them, that is jolting enough. Like, what's the big deal? You just got to say, you know, just give up this name, this imaginary God that you have and life will be so much easier. You'll be safe. Your family will be safe. You can just go back and work and you don't need to live here. You don't need to be here. And instead over and over again, these guards would see people over and over again, refusing to give up Christ choosing, you know, to remain in a concentration camp or in a torture chamber, wherever it is, because they love this man and because they love this God so much. For anyone who witnesses that, they realize that it's more than just talk. It's more than just this idea, this religious system, this philosophy. It's a person that they're dying for. It's a person that they're testifying to. And that does something to the human heart. And so she was saying, pray that the gospel would prevail, especially in concentration camps. Especially when people are persecuted pray that the church would withstand the trials and preach of a God who's faithful through all the challenges, a God who rewards the martyrs and delights in his church. So all of us were sitting in this room like, are you serious right now? Like, do we even believe in the same God? It almost felt like she sees a God that I don't really know. Like she's seeing a very different kind of God. My God It's a little bit smaller. My understanding of, of God is like, okay, maybe I'm willing to give him my Sundays. Maybe I'm willing to give him this. And then if, you know, it feels right, then maybe I'll give him this. But she's seeing this, this other God. Like she's seeing a God who's worthy of all her life. She's like, this God is worthy of all her trials, all her suffering. She's seeing a very different kind of God. And so I walked away thinking Of just what a gift the persecuted church is to the global body of Christ. Because it challenges our categories, it challenges our metrics for success. They don't have massive gatherings, they don't have conferences, they don't have celebrity preachers, they don't have books and CDs and all these things, they don't have any of that. They just have Jesus, they just have the gospel. And if they're lucky, they'll have a copy of the Bible, if they're lucky. That's all they have, and that is enough. That is enough for them. People are turning to this man, Jesus Christ, because he is a God who saves, because he's a God who perseveres and nourishes a victorious, defiant, glorious church, and that is the beauty of the gospel. My last point for today is that the gospel is about eternity with a person. I say this over and over again, because this is part of my testimony for, I grew up in the church for many years, treating Christianity as a collection of beliefs. Like, well, my parents go, so I guess I have to go. And they believe in this book called the Bible. It's kind of like Any other book, I guess. And I just have to memorize parts of it. And I have to be able to recite parts of it. But it never clicked in my mind that this is actually a person that I'm relating to. It's not just a set of ideas and it's not just a philosophy. Um, Modern day Christianity, sometimes it goes into two different directions. One of them is that it can teach cold, hardline dogmatics. More than the person of Jesus. So it can teach you from A to Z. It can teach about what it means to be a Christian. How to live like a Christian. What to believe in if you're a Christian. Without ever talking about the person of Christ. It can teach you how to be a Christian. How to be even a reformed Christian. Or you know whatever flavor you want. It can talk about dogmatics and theology and philosophy and application. Without ever talking about the person of Jesus Christ. And then on the opposite extreme, you know, it's not just that those are evil, you know, on the opposite extreme. It's just the same, except instead of dogmatics, it's like personal, you know, personal experience and what prophets so-and-so said and whatever. You can still do that without ever talking about the person of Jesus Christ. But my prayer is that. You would never be able to go too long without colliding and crashing with this person called Jesus Christ. Because that, not dogmatics and not even personal testimony, that will change your life. That will save your soul. That will revolutionize your life. That will change your perspective. That will transform your heart and your desires. That will overflow into your behavior. That and that alone is able to have the power to do what the gospel needs to do. The gospel is about eternity with a person. I've used this illustration before, and I often like to refer to it because I can't think of a, of a better illustration than this. It's, it's like somebody's engaged to get married, right? And especially in our culture, we can get really obsessed about the wedding day, Right? And so anybody who's planning a wedding, especially if you're planning it from scratch, you can talk about everything from the exact shade of the peonies that you want to get, you know, to like the exact length of the veil and all these different things. And you can get so wrapped up and so absorbed in the nitty gritty that you forget like, oh, I'm actually going to be marrying this individual. (laughs) And it's not just for that one day. It's going to be life afterwards right? It's not just this one day that I need to prepare for. It's actually, I am married. I'm getting united with a person and we're going to live together. We're going to build a future together. It's a very different way to think about a wedding in the same way. The first coming of Jesus Christ, it secures us as the people of God through the sacrifice of Christ. It's like getting that engagement ring. It's saying, Jesus is saying you're mine now and I'm coming back for you. That's what the first coming is all about. It's betr- It's a promise, a covenant between two parties. Now, the consummate. What would happen if there's there's all these promises exchanged and this ring given, and then you wait and you wait and you wait, and the groom just never talks about. Okay, so are we going to set a date? So are we actually going to get married you know, and this that this um, engagement lasts you know, forever? That makes no sense. You would live a very unfulfilled life, right? This is a promise for something that is to come. Now, make that thing come, right? In the same way, when it comes to the first and second coming of Christ, the first coming is that securing a people. We as a bride needed to be purchased. We weren't just free, right? We needed to be purchased. And the price was the spilled blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That was our bridal price. Jesus secured that. And he's saying there is a wedding that is coming. There's a sure day that is coming. We will be together. You will be my people. I will be your God. And we will live even after that. We will live an eternity together. It's not just about this day. It's not just about this betrothal time. It's about an eternity that we get to live together. That is what we're looking forward to. So our understanding of the gospel is not just backwards looking into the past. What did Jesus do for me? Like long time ago, 2000 years ago. It's about also people that look forward to what Jesus is someday going to do. We are not just a backwards looking people, a past looking people. We're also future looking people that know that there's a glorious future and destiny for the church. That is what the gospel is about. It's more than just like some ideas that you collect together and you come up. This is the the gospel message. It's about a person and it's about eternity with this person in the passage that we read. The point of controversy, if you remember, it sounded very out of place, right? It's about these false people who are going to come and say, I am the Christ. You feel like, what does that have anything to do with the end times? And it's about the person of Christ. That's going to be the controversy. So we as a church, we better know who Christ is. We better know this person that we've been promised to. We better know this bridegroom that awaits for us. We better know him as a person. It's not enough just to know ideas or about him. We better know him. In our arrogance, sometimes we feel like, well, other people will get, you know, swayed. Other people will get fooled. Other people will fall away and maybe their hearts will will grow cold and they'll compromise and all of that. But not me. I feel like I have a firm grasp of my, you know, faith. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, take heed. The Bible says many, many people that you think are surefire. They must be Christian. You know, like they love Jesus. If they don't know Jesus at the end of the day, it amounts up to nothing. You can recite all the doctrines about Christianity without knowing the person of Jesus Christ. You can. I had a new test, uh, new Testament professor uh, back in college, and he's the most like well-renowned agnostic in, in, in that uh, academic circle. He's an agnostic teaching about the teachings of Jesus, right? You can be an agnostic and teach the Bible. Did you know that? I don't know why he would do that, but anyway, right? But I was taught, like, a person who's agnostic, who doesn't have trust and, and faith in this person, Jesus Christ, can... Memorize the Bible, can recite all these things, can talk about all the controversy, can, you know, dissect scripture. They can do all of that without knowing the person of Christ. Now, if someone like that is able to do that, do you think we are exempt from that? We, if anybody else, we should know this person of Christ. So that when the day comes... And everything shakes around us and everything shakes within the church and everything shakes within us as well. We would know with sureness who Christ is. There is no question about who Jesus Christ is because I know him. I don't just know about him. I don't just recite things about him or I haven't just, you know, learned his teachings. I know him. I know Christ. I'm going to close with this for today. What is the gospel ultimately leading to? Is it about love for Jesus in the end? And this is a question that should make us re-examine our understanding of what the gospel is. Is it about Jesus? Is it about the person of Jesus, the full person of Jesus? Not just the parts that are a bit more, you know, easy to accept, but, but who Jesus has revealed himself to be. The full person of Jesus. What is this gospel ultimately leaning, uh, leading us to? Uh, if I could have the praise team come up. This is just a, a thought, you know, that has come up in the last couple of weeks. And I want us to think about this, especially because of the times that we live in right now. You know, I talked about the passage in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. How it's like at the brink of all these end time things happening... God feels like it's necessary. It's a necessary provision to show them who I am. I am the Lord and there is no other. I am seated on a throne. No matter what is happening all around you, I'm so seated on the throne. I'm holy, holy, holy. I'm worthy, worthy, worthy. And nothing will change that. In the same way that we see in the book of Revelation, we see the same thing happen in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is also one of those passages where we see the veil being pulled back. And the first verse, and what's very interesting that this is how the prophet Isaiah chooses to begin, it is in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in his temple. And the train of His robe filled the temple. What does it have anything to do with King Uzziah? Why does it matter? It matters because in a moment of greatest political shaking that the nation had seen in a long time, that was the moment to gaze upon the glory of a God who's unchanging, a God who will not die like kings will, a, a God who still is alive, who's still enthroned, who's still worthy and from age to age He is holy, holy, holy it is necessary especially in times of shaking for us to fix our eyes on that which is not shaken Isaiah chapter 6 that's how it starts in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Let me translate that to you in today's terms. In the year that a global pandemic broke out, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He's still holy, holy, holy. The train of his robe still fills the temple. He's still surrounded with worship and glory and beauty. In the year where millions lost their job, I saw the Lord. And He's still high and lifted up. Nothing will change them. In the year that natural disasters hit our planet like never before. In the year that all the things that we took for granted, all of a sudden shifted underneath our feet. In the year where there was social unrest, and there was a mental health crisis. In the year that all those things happened, I saw the Lord. And He was high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. It is imperative because of the shakings that we fix our eyes on this person that we worship. Sometimes we think the most practical thing to do is like have this set of ideas and protocols and things to do. Sometimes the most practical thing that we need to do is fix our eyes on him who's not shaken. That might give you the courage, the love, the, the the selfless sacrifice that you need to endure those shakings. That might remind you that it's more than just compliance, it's about affection, love for this man Jesus Christ. It's more than just, oh, I just want to make it through and hopefully I'll be okay. It's about God, you are worthy of everything. Even if I were to lose everything, you're still worthy. Even if at the end of this year I lost my job, I lost my health, I lost my family, it doesn't matter. You're still worthy. That's why it's imperative for us to fix our eyes on a God who is worthy.